Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr Anna Goldsworthy, writer and concert pianist to Books, 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 to discuss her first novel, Melting Moments, published here in Australia by Black Ink in March of this year. Melting Moments is Anna's third book. Her first, Piano Lessons, was a memoir for which she was awarded Newcomer of the Year at the 2010 Australian Book Industry Awards. She has also written another memoir, Welcome to Your New Life, as well as a quarterly essay entitled Unfinished Business, Sex, Freedom and Misogyny. Anna has written for The Monthly, The Age and The Australian, and on top of all of that, she's also one of Australia's leading concert pianists and a senior lecturer at the Elder Conservatorium of Music at the University of Adelaide. Anna, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. It's lovely to be here. Could I start by asking you to tell our listeners what Melting Moments is about? Melting Moments, I guess, is about a woman's life enacted over nearly seven decades. It begins in about 1940, and it takes us all the way through all of those rites of passage of marriage and motherhood and grief and ageing until we end up in a year that's probably around about the year 2007. Would you like to read a short extract, Anna, to set the scene for us? Sure. So this is an extract that occurs early in the book, and Ruby has just taken up with, you know, quite an appealing swain called Arthur, who's going to be taking her out dancing. It is on one such Thursday evening in September that everything comes to a head. Apart from the distant drone of the war report, the boarding house is unusually quiet, and Ruby takes her time getting ready for a night at the Palais. She has overdone it lately with the mauve, so her sister Daisy helped her renovate her debutante dress, a racier cut to the décolletage, a yard of material shorn from the skirt. All traces of the 1930s removed and of her old country self. You look like Catherine Hepburn, Daisy had enthused when she first tried it on. At the time, Ruby had shushed her, shushed her, but now as she applies her lipstick, she fancies her sister may have been right. There is a loud knock on her bedroom door. Of course it is Arthur. He is always overpunctual. She lingers a moment longer, blotting her lipstick, but the second loud knock is even louder. Hold your horses, she mutters. But even before she opens the door, she feels a warning thud from her heart, as if her body knows first. And there he is, holding a frangipani from the side garden. Good afternoon, Mr Steele. Technically, it is evening, but afternoon sounds more proper. He bows, presenting her with a garnish. For the charming Mademoiselle Whiting. Why, thank you, you're too kind. She remembers carrying on like this with her father sometimes at the farm. Nothing that would trouble Arthur, if he knew. But then he moves in closer, pinning the frangipani to her dress, so that she can smell the alcohol in his breath and something else beneath. He steps back and appraises her, a fetching picture. Aren't you going to invite me in? Perhaps we could join Mr Wilson in the sunroom instead, she suggests. I could make you a cup of tea. She reproaches herself immediately for sounding old maidish. Why in God's name didn't she suggest a port? 
I think I'd rather come in here with you. And he walks into her room and sits down on Daisy's bed, just like that. Ruby busies herself at a dressing table, picking up her lipstick and compact and placing them in her evening bag. He watches, amused. No sign of your sister this evening. Daisy's gone home for the weekend. I, I mean, back to the farm to, to help mother, you know, with the spring cleaning and with one thing and another. She has warned Daisy in the vaguest of terms to be careful around Mr. Steele. But this is probably unnecessary. He has never shown much interest in Daisy, poor girl. No young ladies staying overnight either. No, none of Dr. Fitzgerald's patients. She would like to ask him who they are, these weepy young women who sometimes pass through overnight. The spare bed strips so quickly the next morning they might never have been there, but to ask would put her at a disadvantage. A necessary service, he says with a wink, but I'm sure you'd never put yourself in that position, Miss Whiting, or, or would you? No, she says uncertainly. And then he settles back onto Daisy's bed and offers her a cigarette in her own bedroom, the cheek of it. No, thank you, she says, as if it were the only response she knew. Hope you don't object to bipartake all the same. It's been a long week at work. I'm sure your young paramour will vouch for that. Yes, indeed, Arthur will be here shortly. She takes her gloves out of the drawer and places them on the dressing table as proof of her imminent departure. He's a very lucky man and, I must say, a fine accountant. She had once suggested to Arthur that his boss had quite a reputation, that girls at work were implicated, though she didn't mention Isla by name. Arthur didn't seem to understand or didn't want to understand and she'd felt gossipy and small-minded and left it at that. There are outside pressures, of course, especially with the Japs coming into the picture, but I'm doing my best to protect his place on the reserved list. Thank you. The last thing she wants is Arthur going off to war. She likes having him around, for one thing, and it would hurry things up between them too much. As I said, he's a fine employee. He studies her for a moment, and I'm sure you'd do your bit to keep him here. She glances at him. He's a nice man, really, despite his weakness. Surely he would not be making a threat. He smiles. I've seen you in that gown before, but you've altered it. And she blushes despite herself. For all of Arthur's qualities, he never would have noticed. It becomes you. You're a credit to womanhood at this time. Very resourceful. Somehow, Mr. Steele has calculated her secret vanity. Not her looks. She doesn't feel that she owns them particularly. They came on so quickly, like an attack of something. But her resourcefulness, this she has worked on. Though I suspect she could do with a few extra luxuries once in a while. She feels an odd sensation in her nipples, as if they've been switched on like light bulbs. Oh, I make do, she says feebly. And then there are voices in the hall and a loud knock at the door. Of course, it is Arthur. He is always overpunctual. Anna, you've started this book, you said, based on some stories that your grandmother had told you. What was it about her stories that captured your attention? 
I think she was just a really great storyteller. And when I look back at a history of, you know, afternoon teas and family lunches at her house, I, I just sort of realised over the years how many anecdotes I kind of accumulated and, and what a vivid sense of her life I had, ranging from the 1940s up until the present time. But there are a number of anecdotes in particular that seem to have a real sort of uh, sting in their tail. And, and one of them had to do with this situation of being caught in the bedroom of her boarding house uh, in the presence of my grandfather's boss and what the implications of that ended up being. Um, you know, my grandfather's name was taken off the reserved list. He ended up going to war. Whether or not there was a direct correlation between this awkward experience and that, you know, who's to know? But I thought it made a really sort of potent uh, sort of kernel of the story. So as you said, Melting Moments is the story of one woman, Ruby Jenkins, from the 1940s when she's in her 20s through to her 80s, so as you say, a period of almost seven decades. We see almost all of the characters in terms of how they relate to Ruby. So I thought we'd start by talking a bit about Ruby herself and then we'll talk about her in relation to some of the other characters. Let's start with Ruby. Tell us a little bit about her. What's she like when we first meet her, a young woman first flush of womanhood in 1940s Adelaide? I suppose she's an innocent in a way. She's descended upon what seems like this really exciting metropolis, which is Adelaide from the country, from the farm where she grew up. And she's trying to make her way in town and she's trying to work out, you know, how to, how to be and how to present herself in, in the big smoke. And there's quite a lot of social anxiety about that, about, you know, having the necessary gown to wear to a dance at the palais and so on. But she's also very resourceful. She's very stoical and she's very strong, I think, and in a way quite purposeful. And these qualities emerge more and more over the course of her life. But I, I think they're, they're already there in embryo in those, in those opening scenes. As you mentioned, she's at the time that you're reading, she's met Arthur and he ends up proposing to her quite quickly. And that's because, as you've just foreshadowed, he does end up shortly after the encounter we've just seen, being taken off the reserve list and being sent off to war. At the time that he proposes, they haven't known each other for all that long. What are her feelings for him at that stage? Well, I think she says that he seems like a go-ahead young man, um, so she's sort of pleased about that. I don't think she's quite ready to get married, but, you know, circumstances are conspiring against them. She feels a little bit concerned about a few things she perceives in that particular scene. He seems perhaps a little bit self-pitying about going off to war. The proposal itself is perhaps the most non-romantic proposal in the history of the world in which, you know, essentially he says, since I'm going to war, you might as well get the widow's pension. What do you think? And there's a part of Ruby who's, you know, which is perhaps craving something grander and more um, mythic and, and more romantic. But then she decides that, no, these are not really the times for romance. So she um, she agrees and and then for a moment allows herself a kind of brief um a, a brief moment of maybe this is exciting. I have a soldier fiance. There's a certain frisson to that too. So I think that scene, like like many of the scenes in the book, and you know, I would I would hope too many many scenes in life. There's a there's a kind of cocktail of different emotions that she's feeling at the time, and there's ambivalence. You know, she certainly likes Arthur, and she's attracted to him, and she thinks he's got a lot of potential. Probably is a quite a steadfast husband. But there's also a little part of her that's often perhaps yearning for something more, yearning for something else, and uh, maybe that little part of her is, is there in that scene as well. So he goes away to war and then two years later they reunite in Brisbane. How does she feel about him? How, how does she, is she feeling apprehensive? Is she excited at the prospect of them being reunited? Yeah, again, a big spag, I think, and as she catches various 
trains and so on to get up to Brisbane, which is sort of not really supposed to do at that stage because the public transport is supposed to be reserved for troop movements. So already she feels a little bit furtive making the, the trek up there to see him. But beyond that, you know, two years is, is a long time. She's sort of forgotten a little bit of what he looks like or, or what he's like. On the one hand, she's grateful to, you know, probably be a wife and, you know, um, probably start their married life because they only had a single evening together before he left. On the other hand, she sort of feels like she's travelling across Australia to climb into bed with this person who's essentially a stranger. And so I think, again, there's, there's a mixture of quite a lot of apprehension, anxiety, and I suppose some hope in, in her as she, as she heads up to that moment. So they are reunited and then they're posted to Melbourne not long after. She has her first child, Eva, who she's besotted with, but she feels that she might have lost something of herself. Could you talk a little bit about that, Anna, about how she's feeling at that point after the birth of Eva? Well, at first when Eva is born, she is utterly enchanted with the baby, you know, possibly to Arthur's detriment. Uh, she starts to feel sort of less interest in their, in their romantic encounters, so sort of obsessed and, and focused is she on this, on this infant. But then after a while, she starts to wonder whether she's got a little bit dowdy or a little bit drag. Um, because she's always been, I think, quite a, in her way, quite a glamorous woman and perhaps has got used to a certain amount of attention for being um, attractive. And she's afraid she might have lost that particular superpower. So she enrolls in a modelling course uh, with um, Bambi Smith or Bambi Smith, uh, who did run a modelling course in, in Melbourne, East Melbourne at this time. And again, I think over the course of that of those studies, and particularly in her final catwalk, she gets a sense of maybe slightly more mythic dimensions in which she would like to live, live her life, or a sort of a glimpse of transcendence. There she is on stage being admired. Things are perhaps as she feels they should have been rather than the kind of smaller domestic setting in which she usually lives her life. But it's, it's the briefest glimpse of transcendence. And maybe, you know, one of the sad patterns of this book is that these little moments are opened up and then again they usually immediately shut and she has to reconcile herself to a more suburban existence and you know essentially she, she succeeds in doing so and I think she finds a type of glory in doing so. Ruby's a very practical person at one stage she says that she has never quite believed in falling in love surely it's a decision rather than an accident a die rather than a fall what does that tell us about her attitude to love? Yeah I think she is essentially a pragmatist and yet I think there's a part of her that nonetheless probably subscribes to various romantic beliefs. And even though she has never quite believed in falling in love, it seems that at moments in the book she is ambushed by something, something a little bit beyond her control. And her efforts at trying to work out what to do with it, you know, even where to place it in, in her head and in her worldview, I think are some of the most... I suppose some of the moments of greatest dramatic tension in the book. And, and that, again, that sort of flows through that notion of another way of being, um, maybe a more sort of Hollywood way of being, kind of flows through. It's almost a sort of sliding doors scenario. Just occasionally she allows herself this question, you know, what if? What if I hadn't always taken the practical option? Um, what if I hadn't always been sensible? What, what might things have looked like? And then because she is essentially a practical person, she will close that question down. But I think the fact that she allows herself even to ask that question suggests that the, the practicality doesn't go through her 100%. There is another, there's another, there's something else in there too. 
What is Arthur like as a husband and what's their married relationship like? Arthur is a very dedicated, very steady, extremely loving, devoted, really beautiful husband. Very traditional marriage. She has his own domain. She has hers. He comes home from work at the end of the day. She, you know, she tends to him. She, she makes sure he's, he's looked after in, in the home. There are hints that he was um, discharged from the army because of maybe anxiety or something, but none of them, neither of them want to talk about it. There's sort of a bit, bit of a stigma around that. But there is a sense that he probably is quite an anxious person and no doubt was post-traumatic in a way that couldn't really be properly acknowledged in that era. And so over the years, perhaps that anxiety becomes a little bit stronger in him and he leaves the house even less. But, you know, he's, he's, he's a good man um, and he works hard. As, she's, as she, you know, she correctly um, saw, he was going to be a go-ahead young fellow. He works hard in his accounting firm and is able to buy her the, essentially the house of her dreams, although it's, it's never easy for them. It's a little bit beyond their budget. But he certainly is a, he's a good provider and, and a steady husband. She seems to always be reassuring herself about that. She says things to herself. We're, we're, we're very much inside her mind in this book. We know exactly what she's thinking. So she's saying things like, he's a fine, upstanding man and he's an entirely admirable man. Why do you think she needs to keep reassuring herself of this? I guess it's that little antic part of herself again that pops up occasionally and says, what if, you know, what if you had run off with so-and-so or what if you had married another possibly more dynamic, charismatic person, would your life have been better? And so there's a part of her that keeps needing to, to remind herself, no, make these decisions, I've created this life and it's the best life I could. You know, it's classic stoicism. What is it? Learn to, learn to wish that everything comes to pass exactly as it does. And I think in many ways, as many of the, that generation of women were, um, you know, descended from, again, you know, pioneering strong Australian women who just had to make the most of things, out, out on, 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 the, on the farms or, or wherever, uh, she's very good at, for the most part, accepting things as they are, rolling up her sleeves and getting on with it. Annie, you mentioned the dream house. So they come back from Melbourne, back to Adelaide, and she spends some time looking for the perfect house for them. And she finds a house that she falls in love with and she, she says or thinks to herself, it seems to her that if she had this house, it would allow her to give him everything else. What does she mean by that? What else does she feel she can give him? I suppose 100% wifely dedication and devotion and, you know, I guess closing down that other part of herself that not exactly that she has a wandering eye, she doesn't really, um, but occasionally she has entertained thoughts of other possibilities and the notion that if she had this house, it would allow her to release all of that and, you know, fulfil her, her wifeliness, not only in acts but also in thought. Following a flirtatious encounter with another man along the way, she chastises herself. She's got two children by now, a husband who loves her, yet she sort of rebukes herself saying, yet still she wanted more. What more does she want? Does she know what more she wants? I guess that's what you've just been talking about now. Does she actually know what it is that she wants in addition to what she has already? No, I don't think she does quite know what it is that she wants. Just occasionally she wonders whether life promised something more than 
you know, being a good wife and mother and staying at home and ticking all the boxes in the suburban dream and presenting herself well and keeping up appearances. Just occasionally she allows herself to stop and wonder whether there was or could have been something more. And, you know, as I said, there are these glimpses of what that more might have been. Maybe the proposal could have been more. Maybe it could have been, there could have been more romance. You know, maybe she could have been a model. Maybe she could have been admired by many. Maybe there could have been um, fascinating love affairs. I mean, there's, there's many things that she thinks that there may have been. And I guess part of what I was interested in looking at are those occasional feelings of claustrophobia in that type of existence. And then later on, similar questions arise in the next generation in, in her daughter, Eva, who as a feminist and as somebody who goes to university actually has much broader horizons mm. and many more opportunities available to her. And yet even she too occasionally ponders these questions. Is, is there more to life than this? We're going to look at Eva a little bit later and the difference in opportunities and circumstances available to her being a child of the 60s and then the 70s. For women like Ruby, um, having children, being mothers, being married during the 1940s and 50s, what more was there available to women of her generation? There was marriage and children, but there wasn't really a whole lot more available to them, was there? Not usually. I mean, occasionally you read about an outlier who did amazing things, I don't know, created amazing things in the arts or was a writer or went to university. You know, occasionally you do read about these women who are sort of fundamentally radical, truly radical. But Ruby's not exactly one of those. She's, for the most part, prepared to concur with the status quo and she actually thrives in it. You know, she's an amazing homemaker. She's super competent and she values these skills really highly. When she speaks of her own mother, you know, the, the sort of the grandest praise that she can almost have for another being is that my mother was a most efficient woman. So to be, you know, efficient and competent, to be able to um, be a gardener, be a, be a homemaker, be able to sew your children's clothes, just have this, you know, huge skill set at, 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 um, in your capability was something that, you know, she appreciated and uh, aspired to and, and succeeded at. So it wasn't, I think, as if there were other women running around in her um, line of sight demonstrating significantly different ways of being and, and different ways of living. I think it was more just a sort of, it's the thing, I guess, that Betty Friedman sort of pops up a bit later on in the book, and it's just that feeling of occasional emptiness that perhaps might have nagged at the heart. Could, could there be something more? Particularly post-Second World War when everybody sort of returned to this domesticity and, you know, women came out of the workforce that had a taste of what it was to be out in the world and, and they were very much encouraged back into this private sphere and Doris Day became sort of emblematic of what womanhood could, could aspire to. I think in that particular context, it, it could sometimes be oppressive for, for some women at least. And this is very much a hypothetical question, but let's just say Ruby had decided she wanted to see if there was more out there and if she had wanted to get out of the marriage, would she have been able to? What were the social consequences of divorce for a woman in the 1940s and the 1950s? Was it even possible? Look, it was possible and it did sometimes happen, but it certainly came at a more significant cost than it does now. And, you know, even now divorce comes with its own traumas. But, yeah, there would be a degree of, I guess, social disapproval. There are the financial issues in the sense that women back then, even more so than today, were often very much financially dependent upon their husbands. So, you know, to step out of that paradigm, you're not just risking your reputation, you're essentially risking your whole livelihood. And probably losing your children as well. Quite likely. I have to remark on the amount of baking in this book. 
as listeners know, I'm a very keen baker myself, and there's wonderful references to apple crumbles and Anzac cookies, lemon delicious melting moments. All of those are some of my favourites. But um, her own favourite is ginger cake. Ruby's own favourite cake is ginger cake, and she, in one very memorable scene, makes that for herself for her birthday. There's a lovely story that I've heard you tell about your own experience at a writer's retreat, which um, relates to that ginger cake. Could you tell us that story, please? Yeah, sure, Nicole. I, I had a lovely week, I think it was, and I've been a few times to the writer's retreat up in the Blue Mountains in Katoomba, um, which is called Veruna, and it's just a, it's a beautiful house. It belonged to the novelist Eleanor Dark and her family. Um, very kindly uh, gave it over to be used as, as writing studios. So you turn up there, you sit in your own studio, essentially you type all day, you fully immerse yourself in your own mind and your own madness, and then every night you sit down and join the other writers. There's usually about five or six people there, and this wonderful cook comes and, and cooks for you, this, this woman called Sheila, and every night there's a different menu and there's, there's plenty of wine. So very convivial evenings and very sort of secluded focused days. And for me, it's been a, it's been a godsend going there and, and writing. And on this particular occasion, I, I guess I hit a bit of a block and so I headed downstairs. And the nature of the house itself, gosh, it, it just actually really reminds me of, of my grandmother's house, even the way it smells it's grander than my grandmother's house was, but it's very, I think, a similar vintage, similar type of Federation villa, I think. Um, but anyway, I, was, I just wanted a coffee and then I saw there's some chocolate cake there, so I took a slice of chocolate cake and, and took it back up to my studio where I was, in fact, working on that chapter about ginger cake and, you know, absently took a fork full of the, of the cake and put it in my mouth as I was typing this chapter and then I realised it was bizarrely ginger cake. Sheila had obviously baked a ginger cake and brought it over without any idea of what I was writing and it just seemed like one of those really uncanny moments in which you almost feel there's some sort of cosmic intervention in your work, like some divine force is so terribly invested in your chapter on ginger cake that they've gone to the trouble of supplying you with a ginger cake. But um, what I I'd actually found, I took it as an encouraging sign, you know, a great way also to just sort of fully immerse myself in, in the moment of writing. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about Ruby's own parents and her relationship with them. What are her parents like? Well, her mother, as I mentioned, she admired very much on account of her efficiency. She was possibly somewhat humorless, maybe a little bit of a depressed person, but, you know, could easily um, whip up some pikelets at a, at a moment's notice and... Uh, always had the whitest whites in the cleanest household, excelled at all of those, you know, markers of, of what being a successful woman was at the time. And in a scene sort of later, later in the book, um, her mother tells her that she'd actually been previously engaged to somebody else, that she'd had to break off the engagement because this man, who seemed to all accounts to be a very, very fine swain, had asked her if she would help him raise his sister's illegitimate daughter. And, of course, there was no way she could possibly accept such a notion because, you know, what would people think? They would think that it was her daughter. And so, again, this notion of appearance as being paramount, even at the cost of people's own happiness, I think is a significant one because so she broke up that engagement and she ended up marrying this other fellow, um, Ruby's father, who over the course of this of the story sort of emerges that, you know, he, he's, he's uh, obviously a very lovable rogue, but he has a gambling problem. And 
gambles away her fortune not just once but twice mm -hmm. over the course of her life to the extent that right at the end of their life together she she leaves him you know I think they're in their 80s by now and so she's not it's not a happy marriage and you know she turned her back on something that may have been a happy marriage because there was a scandal attached to it but um Ruby's father yes he is a lovable rogue and he does have this gambling problem but he clearly dotes on his daughter and he's very, very charming, a great raconteur, and somebody she's got a, a real soft spot for, Ruby does always. And only once in the book does she scold him. It's the second time he's gambled away um, their collective earnings. Um, and, you know, she says to him, you've been a naughty, naughty old boy. And then she utterly berates herself because his face just completely falls and she can scarcely forgive herself for how harsh she's been for telling him, and, and what, he, what he had done was, was truly re reprehensible um, because, you know, Ruby's mother wanted to have a comfortable old age and, and she didn't get one. She'd worked really hard her whole life and her, her rogue of a husband thwarted her not just once but twice. So he's a drinker as well. The words that I've written down are charming but dissolute. He's, yeah. he's a drinker. He's unreliable. As you say, he's gambled away their, all of their lifetimes and innings. It struck me that Arthur was the direct opposite of Ruby's father. He's very dependable, he's very responsible, he's very reliable, he's a very good father and a very good husband. Do you think that was part of the attraction for Ruby, that he was, although she loved her father, that she mm. did not want to marry someone like her father? Oh, I think so. I mean, isn't that what they say? We end up marrying our fathers or their exact opposites. And I suspect he was a corrective. And, you know, with everything that was great about that, um, but, you know, with, with the, everything that also was, I guess, somewhat limiting about that in the sense that she'd grown up with his father who was unreliable but, I suppose, exciting. And she ended up marrying this man who was very, very reliable but um, didn't necessarily put that spring in her step that her father or people similar to her father might have done. I'd like to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about her mother, that when the mother refused the advances or the proposal of the other man, it was because she didn't want to take on the other child. And you talked about how for her mother, appearances were important and what people thought of her. That's the same for Ruby, isn't it? Yeah, appearances are important to her and what people think of her is also is, is very important to her. Fundamental. And I think it's only right at the end of the book that she briefly allows herself to imagine a way of being and imagine a way of living in which that's not paramount. Just had one question. We get the hint that he's come back changed after the war and you flesh that out a bit by saying probably what we would now call PTSD. But is that something that he and Ruby talk about? Does she say to him, look, I've noticed that you changed. I noticed that you're different. Do you want to talk to me about what it was you experienced in those two years away? Is that something that they discuss? No, I think not at all. I think it's swept under the carpet in a version of that collective forgetfulness that we see in all sorts of arenas after the Second World War. I mean, again, the sense, I suppose, that this sort of so-called innocence of the 1950s um, was a, a vast whitewashing after this act of sort of extraordinary, hideous evil and genocide and also just collective madness um, that, that had occurred in the 1940s. And I think you see that manifest in, in this relationship. I think Ruby kind of doesn't want to know She's not all that curious about it. She wants to preserve him as he was. The notion that he might have been damaged by the war is something she doesn't particularly want to countenance. And perhaps Arthur would be inclined to talk about it. And indeed, there's, there's one scene in the book in 
which he sort of makes small overtures about wanting to kind of partly get something off his chest. But Ruby, as she often does, uh, draws the line underneath it by saying, well, shall I put the kettle on and make a cup of tea? You know, so many things can be swept under the carpet with a cup of tea. And, and that becomes a coping mechanism that I think also appears throughout the book as, as a type of punctuation. Mm, it's a way of um, stymieing a deep intimacy, isn't it, really, by doing that, yeah. by her not being prepared to receive what he haltingly wants to tell her. Um, she's almost preventing the relationship from becoming as intimate as it could be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting our sort of contemporary notions of what constitutes intimacy in relationships and our expectations of, of the level of intimacy that we, we crave in our intimate relationships. And when you look at that more traditional model of a relationship, quite possibly there wasn't always the expectation that there should have been this kind of soul-to-soul communion of, of innermost thoughts and feelings. Uh, you know, I'm sure they, they love each other, they loved each other, but there was also a kind of very clear demarcation of roles and this is what Arthur did and this is what Ruby did and if everybody fulfilled their roles, the relationship worked. Um, you know, it may be that these days we have unrealistic notions of what we might expect from our partner. It's, you know, in other words, everything. Um, but regardless, it's a shame that Ruby wouldn't allow him to have that conversation, mm. which, you know, I think you know, probably speaks to the way she got on with things, the whole sort of mindset of being stoical perhaps or not being self-indulgent because that would be weakness, um, not allowing oneself to be ambushed by, by that sort of weakness, but just getting on with things. And, and often that probably meant quite a significant level of denial of oneself but also of, of one's loved ones and the capacity, as you say, to be truly close. Let's talk now about Ruby and her daughter, Eva. As you've said, when Eva is born, um, Ruby is absolutely besotted with her. How does Ruby feel when Eva starts school? Ruby is entirely bereft. And I think that profound grief that mothers and, and I suppose parents often feel when their child leaves the home and goes into the world is something that I think is really real, often very real, and something I wanted to write about, that notion that having a child is a kind of... In fact, I've, I've read about this a little bit in my, in my um, motherhood memoir, Welcome to Your New Life, that the notion that having a child in a way is almost like a reverse love affair in which, you know, you begin with this kind of full communion before the child's actually part of your body, and then there's this gradual sort of sundering, this sort of painfully slow sundering of, of you and, and the child very much becomes the other... And loving the child actually means not holding them closer but, but releasing them. And the first day that Eva goes to school, Ruby is really taken aback by the silence. She's so used to just having this constant chattering commentary of her, her little chatterbox daughter. She's so heartbroken. She finally decides what she needs to do is, is go and bake a cake and, and take it to Eva um, at the school so, so she can at least see her. How does that work out for her? Well, <laughs> Eva's not particularly interested in, in Ruby or her cake on this occasion. She's in this stimulating new environment. She wants to play. Uh, she sort of um, politely refuses the cake. And so then Ruby has the shame of kind of picking up the cake and carrying it home. And, and the very weight of the cake somehow is emblematic of, I suppose, the, the weight of her love. What's Eva like as a teenager? And what does she want to become? Um, what does she want her career to be? Well, Eva is quite a shocking teenager. I mean, you know, if 
Ruby and Arthur are quite prepared to subscribe to the status quo. Eve is not. I think, you know, she's fundamentally quite a rebel. She's fundamentally a radical person. And her teenage years coincide with that radical period in history, you know, the 1960s when so many more opportunities for women were suddenly looking like they might open up. And Eva astounds the family one night at dinner by announcing that she wants to become a doctor. And, you know, that just seems like almost, I suppose, an announcement from outer space. It's so foreign to anybody's experience. We have so many female doctors these days, but there weren't that many women studying medicine in the 60s or even the early 70s. So the gradual sort of accommodations that Ruby and Arthur have to make to Eva's way of thinking fascinated me in, in the writing of this book um, because I have a mother who's very much like Eva and has always been just <laughs> ferociously herself and a ferocious feminist and, and brought me up like that as a birthright. But I'd never sort of properly considered what that would have looked like from the other side of things, not having a mother like this but having a daughter like this, particularly when you were so invested in, in a previous version of, womanhood and, and femininity and the opportunities that she wants to pursue were just not available to you no they weren't and everything that you'd excelled at over the course of your life sort of becomes a lot of it seems to become devalued by by the next generation because they're they're kicking different goals there's a lovely exchange um where i think at one point where you really encapsulate the difference in their attitudes we've talked before about ruby's a very beautiful woman and she's very proud of her appearance She's always attracted attention from men, always been regarded as very beautiful. And at one stage when Eva's annoyed with her about something, teenage Eva, she says, try not to be cross, dear. Rage spoils the complexion. To which Eva responds, I don't give two hoots about my complexion. I just want to be a doctor. And I think <laughs> that very neatly sort of encapsulates the difference between them, the differences in opportunity and the difference yeah. in thinking. How does Ruby feel about the fact that Eva in the 60s has opportunities, for example, to go to university and to study to become a doctor that were unavailable to Ruby herself? I never sense any envy from Ruby about that. I sense some bewilderment, some confusion, some hesitations. I mean, a part of her would actually like Eva to concentrate on, you know, becoming a wonderful wife, but it becomes clear that's not going to happen. And so then what occurs and, and what I find quite beautiful is that Ruby and also Arthur, they, they come around to the way Eva is and they end up feeling desperately proud of her and doing everything they can to support her and allow her to flourish according to this completely new paradigm. And so, you know, it's, it's a gradual shift, but, but it certainly happens. And I, I don't sense that there's anything begrudging about it um yeah I think ultimately um even as Eva continues to bewilder Ruby I think she's also just a source of great delight and, and, and great pride for her when Eva ends up getting married she does she marries Ned she does talk to her mother from time to time about the marriage and at one point when Eva complains to Ruby about Ned Ruby says things like well on this particular occasion well, he's always been a good father and provider. What does that tell us about Ruby's expectations of marriage? Yes, well, um, I think her that is her expectation of marriage, or this is the expectations that she's become reconciled to, you know, he's a good provider, he's a good father, be grateful, stop your whinging, 
How does Eva respond? Oh, provision, she says. Is that all I can hope for? Uh, because, you know, Eva, again, is this um, child second-wave feminist. She's got much loftier expectations of, of what she wants in a partnership and she doesn't necessarily want or need provision. She's a doctor who's got the capacity to provide it for herself. She might not actually be um, entirely clear in, in her mind of, of what she wants from a partnership. And, you know, I think they, that, that often has been the case. You know, if the man no longer is going to be this conventional um, provider, what, what is he? Um, and, and where does that leave me as, as the wife? But, but certainly she's not satisfied with provision. I think, you know, she wants more of his time. She wants more of his attention. She feels that he's out all the time. He's going to conferences, he's playing sport or cycling. And she feels very alone. And she wanted something more than that, I guess. What she craved, actually, was perhaps the sort of intimacy we were talking about previously. And she feels she's not getting it. How difficult is it for adult Eva to communicate with her mother, Ruby, across the generations, as it were, given their different expectations, the different opportunities open to them? Yeah, I think consistently quite difficult. And in some ways, I mean, that, that was a significant generational shift. And, you know, in some mm. ways my mother's generation compared to mine, and obviously there's huge changes in everything, in the, especially in what's going on these days. It's sort of massive exponential technological changes and so on. But I somehow feel a less, it was a less significant change of outlook mm. than it was between those two. And, and I think that scene you mentioned previously in which Ruby said to Eva, don't frown, it'll spoil your complexion. The way I imagined that, screen, that, that scene was the two of them just looking at each other and both registering that there was almost like a, a screen between them or some sort of, I don't know, translucent curtain and they could actually see for the first time the generational divide just sort of shimmering in the air between mm. them as they sort of saw each other as essentially strangers mm. to each other. Anna, before you wrote Melting Moments, your first novel, you'd written two memoirs. How did you enjoy writing fiction for the first time and what were some of the challenges for you? I love the freedom of writing fiction. I mean, you know, you do get to play God. You can, you can make anything happen in the whole world. And, and that freedom can also, I suppose, be something that's potentially quite paralysing about it. I think in a way the techniques I use were, were not dissimilar. I think in my memoirs I, I do use some, I suppose, sort of traditionally fictional techniques. I, I do think a lot about storytelling and um, how the narrative is going to unfold and, you know, I use dialogue reconstruction and, and so on. And this is a fiction, but, you know, as we mentioned, it's a fiction in which I guess I, I sought to sort of populate tiny snippets of anecdote that I'd been told over the years or, or build whole worlds around them. So in that sense, I kind of feel both my, my fiction and, and my memoir writing in some ways lie across the same continuum. And it's just a question of how far you walk towards fiction and how far you walk towards allegiance to, you know, the facts but there are aspects of writing fiction that, I mean, I suppose with my first book, Piano Lessons, it's a kind of coming-of-age memoir, and because of that, there's a clear sort of structure or a clear narrative arc that just exists. You kind of know where it's going to begin, what's going to happen, and the outlines were clearer to me sooner. With this book, the outlines were not necessarily all that clear to me, and also because I was trying to do something a little bit unconventional. I, I didn't really want to write something that was plot-driven mm. or that unfolded with a conventional narrative art. I just thought it's an experiment, actually. I thought, can I construct a book from moments? And there'll be a lot of ellipses. There's a lot of things that are missing, huge tracks of her life that are missing that the reader has to fill in. 
And just getting that to work formally was a technical challenge. But I loved, I loved, one thing I love about freedom is the capacity to explore two points of view almost at the same time. And all of that ambivalence, I mean, Ruby was happily married, yes, but she also sometimes yearned for something more. And that perhaps doesn't separate it so much from memoir writing because there's also the capacity for that sort of complexity in memoir, I guess. But I have been working lately on a few kind of, you know, linear essays, non-fiction pieces, and trying to marshal my thoughts into an, a straight line that just unfolds as a clear argument is something I find probably more challenging than, than the beauty of fiction is the capacity to be able to look laterally. You're allowed to think two things at the same time. You're allowed to advance two contradictory points of view because actually I think that's, to me, what life feels like often. And, you know, Ruby muddles through and in some ways her life is limited in other ways her life is just a huge success and it was um yeah fiction is a is a great pleasure and one something a pleasure I'd like to indulge in more in the future. Anna you said that one of the influences for you was Helen Garner's book The Children's Bark that that had had a, a significant impact on your writing would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, I remember, I mean, I think Helen has had a huge influence on a generation of Australian mm. writers. I think she's such a distinctive voice and such a distinctive sensibility and even the way she lives, um, I think, is quite instructive. But when I was a child, I think I was about nine, my dad took my brother and myself out of school for a day so we'd go to Adelaide Writers' Week. And, and Dad is a writer and he was always quite involved with Writers' Week and I used to like going there because I could roll down the hills at the um, at the parade grounds at the um, there there in North Terrace. But on this occasion, Helen was reading from a work in progress, and I've never been particularly interested in you know grown up writing. But it really felt like one of those watershed moments to me. I could understand what she was saying. I was engaged in what she was saying, and even as a child, I think there was something about the robustness of her prose, and I guess the sort of muscularity and its its music. And it's honesty that just got me, it, you know, it struck me. And I think she was reading from a book that I, that subsequently became The Children's Spark, but I just vividly remember being captivated by it, um, by it as a child. And then, you know, as I, as I grew up throughout my teenage years, I read a lot of her work. And, yeah, just there's, there's so much of what Helen does that I think is, is truly original and, and I just respect it very, very much. It's a very lovely thing, what you've just said. I interviewed Tegan Bennett Daylight recently, and she also spoke about Helen Garner's really seminal influence on her work. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a lovely thing to hear one woman writer after another refer to the influence Helen Garner has had on her work. I mean, it's an enduring legacy. Yeah, and you're right, Tegan Bennett Daylight is, an, is another example of that. It is, and you, you're absolutely right, Nicole, that it's lovely to see that because one thing that's often struck me is, as a musician as well as, as a writer and is that in music there's this real sense of lineage and there's this real sort of tangible mm. um, part of just your training, which is one generation handing on the tradition to the next generation, you know, actually passing it hand to hand, literally that kind of, sort of cross-generational dissemination of knowledge. That's the only way music Essentially, it's so much of it is an oral tradition that's just passed from teacher to student. We don't get that in the same formalised way in writing, but you do learn your craft from what you read so much. 
And I do, I mean, I, often I'm reading someone nice, I, you know, I can see, I feel I can see an influence and often I'm reading someone and I feel I can see Helen's influence and I, mm. I sort of recognise it. My final question for you, Anna, is this. Ruby at one stage sort of acknowledges and it, this ties in with what you were saying about the deliberate structure that you chose. Ruby doesn't think she has stories to tell. She thinks to herself that all she has is just a few key moments. So I was wondering, to what extent do you think all of our lives boil down to just a few key moments? Well, I think all of our lives boil down to moments, lots of moments. And I think, you know, retrospectively, we try to impose narrative on our life. We try to imagine that it unfolded in a meaningful plot. And we explain our lives to ourselves in, in various ways. And often the work of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis is to dismantle some of those narratives and allow the the space of freedom for other narratives to emerge that might be more productive. But I think, you know, we can try to marshal our life into these sort of satisfying aesthetic arcs, but they don't work like that. They're, you know, it's, it's a randomised quality. And so, you know, in that sense, I guess any work of fiction is going to be a work of artifice, clearly. And yet I was hoping that by not enforcing that particular structure of, you know, a satisfying plot on it. Although, that, you know, there are certain symmetries that emerge, but I like the idea of honouring the moment. Um, on, yeah, honouring. I also, you know, in some ways actually it's a bit of a feminist position for me too when I look at history, when I look at the disappearance of women from the historical record essentially because they weren't whatever leading nations to war. They were living, they were making the world work, they were doing, you know, way too much of the unpaid labour of, of the world. But just because there's not a grand dramatic arc does not mean this uh, story doesn't deserve to be told or that this life doesn't deserve to be honoured. And I guess that's what I was seeking to do was, was honouring, was to honour the moments of, of that life. Anna, thank you so much for talking to me here on Books, Books, Books. I absolutely loved your book, Melting Moments, published by Black Ink. I think it's one of the best books by an Australian writer over the last few years, and I just wish you every success with it. Congratulations, and thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. 